Well, good morning, or good not good morning. I'm so used to Sunday morning services. Good evening, everybody. As you all can tell, I am not Terry Fakes. I am his more attractive understudy, Blake Baston. Uh, Terry is out of town today, and so he asked me to sub for him tonight to kick off this series on the 400 years in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He will be here the next three weeks of this series, though, so make sure you come back next week and check it out. Uh, but I'm excited to get into the lesson today. If we could, let's bow our heads and pray for us. Lord, I thank you for this evening. I thank you for this great church. I thank you for this great nation that we just got to celebrate. Uh, I think that we're here in the air conditioning enjoying this, this um, incredible, incredible church you've given us. I ask that you would give me wisdom as I tell your story. May it be your words tonight. May you be here with us. May you help us understand what it is you seek for us to understand. We ask you to be with Terry and Laura. We, we thank you for their leadership. May you be with all those brothers and sisters in Christ we have throughout the world. Help us to better understand you. Help us to understand your love. Help us to experience your love. May we do this tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. And well, as I, as I got into this series and Terry was telling me what he wanted me to talk about, uh, he really wanted me to set up the prophecies that occur during the time of exile, the prophecies that lead to the restoration period that really set the historical context for what happens at the very end of the Old Testament to go into the history of those 400 years between the old and the new. And the more I looked at all this great preparation he had given me, uh, whenever you sub for Terry Fakes, he gives you like 40 slides and eight different maps to choose from and incredible commentaries to choose from. So as I started going through all of his materials, I realized that to really better understand that, that historical context going into the, from the old to the new, you had to really understand the end of the Old Testament. And to really understand the end of the Old Testament, you had to understand the middle of the Old Testament. And to understand the middle, middle of the Old Testament, what, you have to understand the, the beginning of the Old Testament. And so we're gonna do something a little different tonight. I'm gonna teach you the entire Old Testament in less than 60 minutes. Are you ready for this? <laughs> you got this? All right, I, I actually saw some confidence. I told my wife this and she was not confident about this going well. But we're gonna do the entire Old Testament tonight in 60 minutes and I hope it comes alive for you. I love the Old Testament. If I had to be a scholar, I'd be an Old Testament scholar. It's just a beautiful thing that we tend to overlook. And so the Old Testament starts with three words. What are the three words that it starts with? In the beginning, see, you guys have got this, right? In the beginning, in the beginning, God created. In the beginning, all was good, right? In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, he made us. He made us in his image. He gave us a mission in this world. In the beginning, everything was the way it was meant to be. And then we screwed it all up, right? We screwed it all up. We fell, we disobeyed God. And from that very first fall, Right? We've been living in exile. We've been living in a way that was not the way God intended. And that really starts the entire story of the Bible. It's a story of God's redemption, a story of his plan to bring us back home. And so I want you to read you this quote that came from Tim Keller. Terry gave this to us. It says, the story of the human race, however, is one of exile and longing for homecoming. 
Death and disease have distorted and defaced God's good physical creation. Society is a babble filled with selfishness, self, self-exaltation and pride. Exploitation and violence mar in hu- the human community. The world as it is now exists is not our true home. We were made for a place without death or parting from love, without decay and without disease and aging. We are therefore exiles and aliens here. Why? Because the human race turned from God to live for itself. Our first parents were turned out of the garden of God and banished from the face of God in whose presence is our true home. We are alienated from God, our true selves, one another and the creational environment, right? We are exiles. We are not living in our home. And so there's one theme that I want you to see as we go through this story. As I tell you the story of the Old Testament tonight, I want you to hear this theme come up time and time again. And it's this. Nations rise and nations fall, but all the world's power, all of history bends to God's will. And this is God's will, right? This is his will to bring you and to bring me home to be with him. That is a story I'm gonna tell you today through the Old Testament, over and over and over again. Now, as you, as you may expect, many of you are probably much more familiar with the New Testament than you are the Old Testament. All right, it's one reason I love doing this lesson where we, do, we just cover it all, because most people just don't have a good framework for the Old Testament at all. The Old Testament is scary. I remember I never picked up the Old Testament. It didn't make sense to me. It seemed like God was angry. Uh, didn't understand who was talking to what. It seemed like the whole old story over and over again. People just kept messing up. Could not understand the Old Testament. And so today, as we go through the lessons of the Old Testament, the story, I wanna give you a couple of resources and ways to think about it that really helped me allow the Old Testament to come to life. This is a book I've read uh, this year that I really enjoyed. It's called The Epic of Eden by Sandra Richter. Uh, If you're looking for a really good book about the Old Testament that's easy to read, but very good academic book, I'd recommend this book. Uh, And one of the reasons I bring this book up is because she, she, she taught the Old Testament to undergraduate students for decades. And she found that the best way to describe the issue we have with the Old Testament is with the illustration of a junk closet. And so she goes, think about your junk closet. Your junk closet, you get, a, you get a coat or you get a jacket, you get a shirt and you throw it in your junk closet, right? And over time, you keep putting stuff in that junk closet and it becomes a bit overwhelming. And, and you know you need to deal with that junk closet. You know you need to clean it out. But as it gets more and more overwhelming, you don't actually clean it out, you just shut that door. And you say, I'll come back to it later, right? But you never actually come back to it later. She goes, this is like the Old Testament for us. As we grow up, as we go to church, we hear these stories about the Old Testament. We hear the story of Adam and Eve. We hear the story of Moses. We hear Noah. We we know about this guy named Elijah. We've heard about Ahab and Jezebel. There's something going on with Jonah and a well. Something happened with Jerusalem and Nebuchadnezzar. I'm not quite sure. But all those stories are kind of like these jackets we throw in the junk closet. And we never go back and organize them. And because we don't know how to organize it, we don't know how to make sense of it, we just leave it all in that closet. And we never go to give it structure and order and discipline so that we can see how it all fits together. But the Old Testament is actually very well organized. The Old Testament should look like this closet, right? It should have nice, you know, nice shelving and labels. This looks like my wife's closet, right? This is how my wife would organize a closet. She would have labels on each row. But 
you, you look at this and you can know where to go to get things. You know where the shoes go, you know where the jackets go, right? You can make sense of things. And so I wanna give you a framework of how to make sense of the Old Testament as I tell you this story. And the way I've personally made sense of it is by using these three questions. Each time I'm going through a story in the Old Testament, I ask myself these three questions. What is going on in the overarching story? What's happening in the timeline, right? Who is the author talking to or about, right? And I'll keep going through these questions, by the way. So who's the author talking to or about? You kind of need to know that. And then the third one, and this may be the most critical for me personally, who is the dominant political power of the time, right? Especially in the ancient Near East, who is the big guy, right? Who's that dominant political power? Because it does matter, right? So as you ask those three questions, you can really start to make sense of the Old Testament. The first one is what's going on with the overarching story? This is a simple graphic I've given you that we'll go through throughout this presentation uh, that just gives you a timeline of the Old Testament. And most of you know the first four to five of these really, really well. You know the story of creation in the beginning, God, right? In the beginning of creation, you know the fall. You know that everything went badly and you've heard about the flood and you even know about God's covenant he made with Abraham to bless Abraham and to make him a nation, you know, full of so many people, right? You know about that promise he made to Abraham. Uh, and then you also know, because you've, you've been in church, you've been in Terry's class for a while, you know these things, right? You know about the story of Moses, right? Abraham, if you go back to Abraham, Abraham had Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had how many sons? 12, I heard at least a few people got that answer. Right? Good job, 12, 12 sons. Jacob had 12 sons. Those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel, right? If you were in the sanctuary this Sunday, you heard Terry preach on his youngest son, Joseph. Uh, Joseph was, was his favorite son, right? And Joseph uh, eventually got sold into slavery into Egypt, and he goes to Egypt and then God uses Joseph to prepare for what is going to occur when there's a famine in the land. The people in Israel, all of his family come to Egypt. Joseph cares for them. And we see God's people thrive in Egypt. Uh, they thrive there for generations and the people grow, the Israelites grow during their time in Egypt. So much so that the Pharaoh of Egypt gets really worried about how big the Israelites have gotten. And he enslaves them and puts them through hard labor. And then God raises up a deliverer named, yeah, this isn't a trick question, I promise you. Yeah, yeah, Moses, you got this, right? God raises up a deliverer named Moses and he says, let my people go and Charlton Heston does all the great work that Charlton Heston does. And they go out of Egypt, right? God does these amazing miracles and they, they're in the wilderness for 40 years and God teaches them his ways. He gives them the law, right? Uh, during that time of the wilderness, he strips them of their slavery of Egypt. He teaches them about him and he prepares them to go into the promised land of Israel. Well, right before the promised land, we move from the Exodus to the conquest of Canaan. Uh, so Moses dies, Joshua takes over the leadership of Israelites and they go into Canaan, modern day Israel. And they defeat all these kings in Canaan, all the local people groups that were in Canaan. And the 12 tribes of Israel, going back to those 12 sons of Jacob, right? Those 12 tribes of Israel uh, all have various allotments of land in the land of Israel. And they kind of govern themselves during that time. 
And in that time, we see the time of the judges. And so as they govern themselves, they tend to fall away from God. And as they fall away from God, the various people, groups, and countries, nations all around them attack and they're oppressed. And so God will raise up these leaders named the judges, people like Gideon and Samson, various people you've heard about in the Bible, to rescue God's people and to bring them back to him and to restore the nation. And then everything is good. And guess what happens when everything is good? They fall away because they think they can handle it all on themselves again. And this cycle repeats over and over again. And it ends with this great line in the book of Judges. It says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king in Israel, right? The people call for a king, just like all the other nations have. They don't wanna be governed just by God through their tribes. They want a king. And so we get to this timeline of the kingdom. And that's where I wanna press pause. Uh, because up to this point in the Bible, if you just pick up the Old Testament tonight and go home, you can start in Genesis and go through Judges, and you've pretty much read this chronological story in the Bible. It's a narrative, right? It's a story you can really understand. Once you get to the kingdom, though, is where everyone normally just quits reading, right? It gets more difficult to understand. And that's where we need to go back to our structure. We need to organize our closet, so to speak. So let's go to the kingdom. This was around about 1100 BC to 982 BC. And let's ask ourselves these questions. What is going on in the overarching story? Who's the author talking to or about? And who's the dominant political power of the time? Well, what's going on in the overarching story? The people have called for a king. We have our first king of Israel, a man named Saul, right? Saul is ruling over all the people of Israel. Uh, who is the author talking to and about? The people of Israel are a united group at this point in time. They're still part of the 12 tribes, but they've all united to anoint a king, king named Saul. And then who's the dominant political power of the time? Israel's independent at this point. They're really not under the rule of any foreign power. Uh, they're not the most powerful force in all the world or anything like that, but they are ruling themselves, right? So this story of Saul is a really good age now Saul, his kingdom, his, the next king of Israel is a man named, yell it out, I know you got this, David. Good job, y'all have been to church, right? Man named David, and David was a great king who fought lots of wars, right? And David really expanded the kingdom. And under David's time, it's really a golden age of the nation of Israel. Uh, he brought the people together. Um, he, like I said, brought peace. By the end of his reign, the nation of Israel was really at peace. He was a wartime king who brought peace to the people. And then his son, a, na a man named Solomon, became king. Solomon ruled in peacetime. Uh, Solomon had it easy, honestly, in many respects. David did most of the hard work. But this age of David and Solomon was the best of the best for the people of Israel. Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem, right? It's a beautiful temple. People, countries, you know, leaders from all over come to see Solomon, to understand his wisdom and, and get respect from him, right? This is a golden age for Israel. Now, how does Solomon do? Uh, Solomon makes a number of bad parenting choices, bad choices about chasing the wrong women. Uh, he, he makes a number of mistakes that God tells you not to make. And by the end of Solomon's reign, right, there's weakening occurring in the kingdom. Now Solomon has a son named Rehoboam. And Rehoboam makes a bad mistake that leads to the two kingdoms, right? Rehoboam doesn't take counsel from the wise people who had been there all those years helping David and Solomon. 
He takes counsel from the young kids who think they know everything. Don't you hate these young kids who think they know everything, right? So, so yeah. and by the way, every generation, this is just a quick aside, this isn't in the notes, but every generation thinks that the people coming after them are gonna screw everything up, right? And every generation thinks that the generation who came before them is naive, right? It's been like that from the history of time, so we are no different today, right? Uh, but Rehoboam screws it all up. He listens to the wrong people and he does not lead well. And the 10 tribes of Israel that lived in the north side, they split off and they go their own way. And the two tribes that are in the south split off and go their own way. So all of a sudden we do not have one united Israel. We have two kingdoms. So let me kind of show you this. You see there to the north is the kingdom of Israel. Uh, and there to the south is the kingdom of Judah. So what's going on in the overarching story? The kingdoms have divided. Israel is no longer one group of people. There are two, two kings being set up, two kings leading their people oftentimes in different directions. Uh, who's the author talking to her about? Like I said, you will get, whenever you get into the story of the kings, you have to be very careful when you're going through the Old Testament as to which people are we talking about? Are we in a story talking about the Northern Kingdom? Or are we in a story talking about the Southern Kingdom? Right? And it will tell you, but whenever you see Israel during this time, they're actually talking about the Northern Kingdom of Israel. When you see Judah, they're talking about the Southern Kingdom. Uh, for reference, Jerusalem is in Judah, the Southern Kingdom. And then who is a dominant political power at the time? Now this is something that is, that is interesting because during this two kingdoms period, there begins to be a rise of a new political power in the ancient Near East. And this, this group of people were the most brutal, the most powerful empire that ever existed to this point in time. And their names were the Assyrians. And the Assyrians, like I said, they were tough. They were really tough. And they began to exert influence time and time again over especially the Northern Kingdom of Israel. They started attacking, they started taking over towns, they started uh, requiring tribute. And so we have this uh, great, this is a piece of an artifact that's uh, in the British Museum of History. And this is a man named Jehu, who was actually the king, one of the kings of the Northern Kingdom of Israel. And Jehu was not a weak man. Jehu, uh, Jehu came to power by decree of God by murdering a bunch of people. Right. I actually, my favorite Bible lesson I've ever taught in my life was about Jehu. And I correlated the story of Jehu to the plot line of Michael Corleone from The Godfather, right? And it lines up perfectly, right? I mean, we should stop this lesson right now and teach that lesson. Actually, it was, it was a great lesson. Anyway, but Jehu, you see in this, in this artifact, he is bowing down to the king of Assyria, paying tribute, right? The king of Assyria, they like I said, they were ruthless. And so they start oppressing the Northern kingdom of Israel. And God sends all kinds of prophets to the Northern kingdom to warn the kings and the people to repent of their ways, to trust in God, to not go astray, that he will protect them if they keep their covenant, right? He sends these prophets that you've heard of before, Elijah, right? All the story of Elijah and Jezebel. Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab, who was the king of the Northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, you see the prophet Jonah come up during this time of the two kingdoms. He is a prophet who is speaking from the Northern kingdom. Uh, Jonah, if you remember, he was called by God to go to a certain city. Does anyone remember the city he was called to? Nineveh, great job, A plus, right? Bonus points in heaven for all of you. So jo Jonah was called by God to go to Nineveh. Nineveh happens to be the capital 
of the Assyrian empire. Now, if you remember, Jonah did not wanna go to Nineveh, right? Not because he was afraid of boats, but because he didn't want the people of Nineveh to repent. He wanted God to punish all the people of Nineveh because the Assyrians had been oppressing them all this time. And so you see all of these kings of Israel. If you notice, I've got the kings of Israel listed in red. As I go through this lesson today, I will have all the bad kings of Israel in red, all the good kings of Israel and Judah in green. You will notice all red, right? There was no good king of Israel, right? They all led their people astray. But you see these prophets that God sends to talk to the people. Uh, the reason I say this, as you read these stories in the Old Testament, as you read the story of Elijah and Elisha, as you read the story of Amos, Amos who goes and speaks truth to power, right? You need to understand that it's during a time of a divided kingdom. They're speaking from the Northern kingdom and they're speaking within the context of oppression of the Assyrian empire. Okay, does that make sense? So we go through all of that and we start to move to a new phase uh, of the, we start to move to a new phase of the timeline, the phase of Judah alone. Now, the Assyrian empire, like I said, was brutal. And you saw all those kings, if I go back to that slide, you see all those kings were in red. They all led their people astray. Eventually, the Assyrians take over all of the Northern Kingdom. They destroy the villages, they destroy, they, they, they kill so many people. And the Assyrians had a tactic that whenever they would take over a people group, they would disperse all the people, all the, the slaves, right? All the people they, they captured, they would disperse them all throughout their empire so that they couldn't accumulate as a people group anymore to rebel at any point. So those 10 nations, those 10 tribes of Israel really get lost to history for the most part. It'll come back up a little bit in the New Testament. We'll talk about that later if I get to it. But uh, they're really lost to history for the most part. And so you see that the nation of Judah is really all on their own. The, the northern kingdom of Israel is gone. It's part of the Assyrian empire, but Judah remains. Now remember, God made a promise to Abraham to make him a great nation, right? A promise that was going to endure. You will see all through the Old Testament that God always keeps his promise. He always keeps faithful people and he pours into his faithful people to ensure that his promises will be fulfilled. And Judah is preserved. But the Assyrians were vicious and the Assyrians go after the, the, the kingdom of Judah as well. This is a, uh, another artifact at the British Museum of History that shows uh, this was found from the Assyrian Empire. This is an artifact of, of the Assyrians attacking Lashish, which would have been a, a, a village in Judah. And as they are bringing all the prisoners back through the Assyrian Empire, the Assyrians take on almost all of the villages, all the towns of Judah, and they get to Jerusalem one day and they are at the gates of Jerusalem, right outside the walls, and they are attacking Jerusalem. They're laying siege to Jerusalem. And to all accounts, you had a couple hundred thousand of Assyrian soldiers at the gates of Jerusalem. They should have been killed that day, right? The, the story of the Jewish people should have ended right there. But there was this king named Hezekiah and this prophet Isaiah who sought counsel from God and God delivered his people that day and almost a couple hundred thousand Assyrian soldiers died, right? And they were, they were preserved, they were saved, right? Jerusalem, that remnant was kept. And we actually know this to be true, right? We have artifacts of this as well. Uh, this, is a, this is an artifact uh, that tells of the exploits of the king of Assyria at the time named Sennacherib. 
And within all these exploits, I mean, all these kings, you know, they had pretty big egos. And so they loved to brag about all the people that they destroyed, all the kingdoms they took over, all the kings they deposed. Uh, and so this, this shows a lot about all those stories. But when it gets to the story of Jerusalem, when it gets to the story of Hezekiah, I, I wanna read the last couple sentences. He says, he, meaning Hezekiah, shut, was shut up in Jerusalem, his royal city, like a bird in a cage. And I put watch posts around him and made it impossible for anyone to go out of his city. Sennacherib is saying something fascinating there. He's saying, I didn't take over Jerusalem, right? He had an overwhelming military force and for some reason he was stopped, right? God preserved his people. And so the nation of Judah remains, at least at this point in time. The nation of Judah remains. And so if you go to Judah, what's going on in the overarching story, right? God's people are still governing themselves in Judah. Uh, who's the author talking to? All throughout this time of Judah alone, the prophets of this time are talking to the people of Judah, right? That's who they're gonna be talking to. So whenever you read the stories of um, all of these prophets uh, listed up here. Uh, when you read Isaiah, when you read Zephaniah, whenever you read Habakkuk, right? Whenever you read these prophets, they're talking about this time to the, to the nation of Judah. And you see all these kings of Judah. And you talk about my green and red illustration here. There's not much green up there either, is there? Right? And the one good king, Hezekiah, who we just talked about, he's gonna really screw up. And I'm gonna show you that in a second. Josiah was like the only good light in all this. And even he screwed up at the end of his life. Right? The kings of Judah continue to lead their people astray. And so Hezekiah, king of Judah, who had just had this incredible victory over the Assyrians, who preserved his people, he gets more time in life and he just blows it, right? Let me, let me show you what he does. So in the book of 2 Kings, Hezekiah makes a mistake. You see, there was a new rising political power in the ancient Near East, this power, this group called the Babylonians. And these Babylonians had heard that Hezekiah was sick and they decide to send envoys to Hezekiah to check on him and see how he is doing. Well, as Hezekiah sees them and, and, and talks to their envoys, he decides to show them all the storehouse of all of his riches in the temple. He shows them his gold and his silver and all the fine things that they had, they had kept all the way from the time of Solomon, right? And so Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, comes to Hezekiah and pretty much says, hey, what did you do? Like, what, what did you just do? And he goes, oh, hey, I showed these envoys all my cool stuff. And he goes, well, that was stupid. I'm, I'm paraphrasing the Bible here, but he said, oh, that, that was not a good idea. Uh, and he pretty much says in verse 17, behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, said the Lord's, and even your sons will be taken away and they'll be made eunuchs and slaves to the king of Babylon. And Hezekiah has a very mature response to this because he goes, well, it's God's word, so it must be good. But as long as it's not happening while I'm alive, so be it, right? And so that is the end of Hezekiah, which is just so sad because he started out so well. But you see right there that this prophecy comes that the Babylonians are going to take over Judah. And we see that play out. So this overarching narrative of the Old Testament, we see a rise of the Babylonians. Uh, into this time of captivity. And eventually, eventually, this king of Babylon named Nebuchadnezzar is gonna rise up, he's gonna win all kinds of military battles, and he is gonna take over Judah, right? And so we see the Babylonian empire 
uh, extend all the way. They defeat the Assyrians. They come down into Judah and everything is under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, we see the horrible scenes in, in the Old Testament uh, where Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is destroyed, the people are carried back. Uh, but what's interesting about this is God's promises are always kept, even during this time. And you remember how I told you the Assyrians, they would take their people and they would disperse them through all the empires so they couldn't gather together? Well, the Babylonians had a different tactic. They would take some of the best of the best of the people they conquered and they would use them. And so the Babylonians, even before the temple was destroyed or before they destroyed Jerusalem, they would bring some of these people from Israel into Babylon to start to work for them. And one of these people is someone you know, a man named Daniel, right? So Daniel, when you read the story of Daniel, I want you to think about those questions, right? What's going on in the story? Well, Judah's been destroyed, right? The people are going into exile. You know, Who's the major political power? The Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, right? Who are they talking to? Daniel's talking to a people in exile, right? People who have lost everything, right? It gives you a lot more context of the desperation and the despair of these prophets when you understand what they've gone through, what they've seen. I mean, they've, they've lost it all. Imagine being ripped from your homes, many of your family members being killed, everything you cared about destroyed, and you're brought back and told to work for the good of the people who've just decimated your people, right? That's the story of Daniel. And so this is actually what Terry wanted me to teach you about tonight, was the story in Daniel, by the way. So we're finally getting to what Terry intended. So I wanna talk about a couple things that happened during the story of Daniel, right? That actually set the scene for the entire historical context that will occur leading up to the end of the Old Testament and even during those 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see, Daniel, during his time, he has some visions. And in Daniel chapter two, uh, he, he's interpreting some visions that occur. And I wanna read you this vision. It says, you looked, O king, talk about Nebuchadnezzar, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. Now, while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and the clay smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was a dream and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you rule over them. You are the head of gold. I wanna just stop that for just a second. And I want you to really pay attention to the end of this paragraph. Because you'll notice that it says that God was the one who has granted authority to Nebuchadnezzar, right? God is the one who has allowed different things to happen. In all these stories of all these historical figures, of all these nations that rise and fall, they all think they may be in charge, but it is God's hand that is shaping history, right? God is involved in every single bit of it. But this is an interesting vision that continues to go on. Let me read the next six uh, verses. It says, after you, another kingdom will rise inferior to you. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, who will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there'll be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. 
and his iron breaks things to pieces, so it'll crush and break all the others. Just as you saw the feet and the toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it, there'll be some strength of iron in it. Even as you saw the iron mixed with clay and as the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than the iron mixes with clay. And in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will be left to another people. It will crush all of those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will endure forever. It'll be a rock that breaks it all. All right, so this is a crazy, crazy vision, right? And I'm gonna show you a picture here in a second. You might've got it in your handouts if you're here. Uh, I'll show you a picture of, of this vision and I'll interpret it a little bit. But there's another vision that Daniel has when he's older that actually is the exact same vision. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you that vision and then we're gonna talk about them together. So in this vision, in Daniel chapter seven, he pretty much says the same thing. Uh, Daniel had a dream, visions passed through his mind as he's laying in bed and he wrote down the substance of his dream. And in this dream, there's four different beasts. The first was a lion and it had wings of an eagle. And I watched until the wings were torn off and it was lifted to the ground so it stood on two feet like a man. And the heart of the man was given to it. And then there's a second beast which looked like a bear and it had ribs in its teeth. The third beast was a leopard who had four heads and four wings. Right? And then the last beast was even more devastating. It had 10 horns and one of the little horns came up and destroyed the others. Right? You see this crazy vision occur from Daniel. Well, what we're able to do, Daniel's able to interpret these visions and dreams right there. He knows that it's a vision of kingdoms that are gonna rise up, but we also get the benefit now of looking back on history and we can see how all of this played out. So you remember, I told you, part of the things we have to understand in the Old Testament is who is the major political power, right? Who's the dominant, dominant military force? Well, these visions are giving us a roadmap for how that's gonna play out. Uh, in the first vision on the left, the statue, the head of gold, right? Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, that's him. You are the head of gold. Uh, that is the, that's a symbol for the Babylonian empire. Then you see the arms and chest made of silver that are crossed like this. You see two body parts coming together who are made of a substance that's inferior to gold, but is still very strong. So you'll see that, and we've got listed here, the Persian Empire. After the Babylonians, a new empire is gonna rise, and it's a combination of the Persians and the Medes. And so you see the chest and the arms coming together to create something strong. Well, after the Persians, another empire is gonna reign. You see the waist belt there. That represents the Greek empire. And then lastly, you see the legs made of iron. And iron is the strongest of all materials. Iron is able to crush things greater than any of the other materials, right? That iron represents the strongest of all empires that will ever be, the Roman Empire. But at the very bottom, you see those feet are made with clay. They're mixed between clay and iron. It's a symbol that even that strong kingdom will deteriorate that that strong kingdom will fail. And then it talks about a rock that comes out, right? A rock that was not made by human hand that comes and destroys it all. And that rock expands into a mountain that encompasses the whole earth. And it creates a kingdom that will always endure, that will forever be. What do you think the rock is? 
Jesus, right? I, tell, I, told, I told a class earlier today that if you are in a Protestant Bible study in America and you don't know the answer to the question, just say Jesus, right? It is most likely gonna be the answer, right? Jesus, that's our understanding of the prophecy of the kingdom of God, right? That will be foundation upon Jesus coming into this world, right? Because if you understand history, which is what I love about the Old Testament, as we get into the new, the rise of the Roman empire, it's the most amazing empire in the history of the world but it gets brought down by the rise of Christianity, not because of the military power of Christianity or the political power, but because of what it does to the fabric of the people. It changes the people, right? It changes the empire. So we see this prophecy in this vision of going all the way to Christ right there from Daniel, a prophet in exile in Babylon. And then this second vision he had of the four beasts, it's the same exact symbols, right? The first one, lion with wings represents Babylon. The second one, the bear uh, represents Persia. And you see the bear has three ribs in its mouth. That represents the empires that they have destroyed. So the Egyptians, the Assyrians, and now the Babylonians, right? Then you see Greece. And if you notice the animal in, in the Greek symbol has four heads and uh, four wings, so, and Terry's gonna talk about this next week, about the rise of Alexander the Great. A leopard is known for its cunning and its speed, and there was nobody who went through territory quicker than Alexander the Great, right? And if you remember when Alexander the Great dies, I'm sorry if I'm stealing this from Terry for next week, right? But if you remember when Alexander the Great dies, his kingdom is separated into how many parts? Four, y'all are so good, you don't even need to come to class tonight, right? So separate into four parts. So you see this symbol play out. And then lastly, you see this symbol, the, the biggest beast, the most, the prowling beast representing Rome. And you see the horns pop up, which represent royalty. And you see this little horn come up that usurps it all. It's the same symbol as the rock, right? Right there in Babylon, God is giving Daniel a picture of everything that is to come. Remember when I said nations rise and nations fall, but God's will will be done, right? All of history bends to God's will. He foretold everything that was to occur. He is always the actor in the story. And so the time of Babylon had, cur had, had come, Daniel's in Babylon, he sees these visions, but then God starts to send, right? The, the signals of what is going to come to begin to restore the people. He is not going to leave his people in exile, right? A good theme of the Bible. He will not leave his people in exile. And so we see the next phase of the Bible, the Old Testament play out, we call it the restoration. And Daniel actually knows that the restoration is gonna come. Uh, at the very beginning of Daniel, it says, in the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, who was made ruler of the Babylonian kingdom in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Daniel had a contemporary who had gone before him named Jeremiah. Jeremiah had also been a guy who'd been taken out of Israel and brought to Babylon, a different part of Babylon, but brought to Babylon. And Jeremiah had been given the word from God that, I'll, I'll just read it to you, it comes straight from Jeremiah, uh, that pretty much, I'll punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate forever, right? Pretty much you will serve in Babylon for 70 years. And so they knew, the people in the exile of Babylon knew that this would not last forever, that God would send deliverance to his people. They were counting on it. But God told his people while they were in exile to work for the good of the places they had been sent. Right? And they did. They prospered, they multiplied, they grew. Right? But God said he would send a deliverer. 
And so we see this play out in the story of Daniel. So towards the end of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar's died. You got a new king in, King Belshazzar of the Babylonians. Uh, and he was having a great banquet there in Babylon. Uh, and at this time, the Babylonian empire had been growing weaker and the Persian Mede empire had been growing stronger, right? And so they're throwing a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and they were drinking wine. And while Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar and his father had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. This is not gonna end well for this guy, right? So he's saying, go get the fine china from, from the, the temple from Solomon. I wanna drink my wine out of that. And if you see there at the end, not only did he drink wine, but as he's drinking wines with all of his concubines and everything, they start toasting the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. This does not, does God ever like it whenever we start praising other gods? No, right? And so this does not end well. And so suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand of the royal palace. And the king watched the hand as it wrote and his face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. And so the king called out for all the enchanters, all the astrologers to be brought in. He goes, somebody has to tell me what this writing means. And if they do, I'm gonna clothe them in purple and in royal robes. I mean, give them lots of money and prestige. And he says, call them all in. But none of the wise men could figure out what was, set, what was the writing on the wall. Have you ever, ever heard that phrase, the writing on the wall? This is where it comes from, by the way, right? Everyone's like, oh, okay. So this is the writing on the wall. So no one can figure it out. And then someone gets this great idea. Remember that Daniel guy who seemed to always know everything? Let's call him in. He's an old man now. And Daniel comes in as an old man and he answers the king and he goes, look, I don't need any of your stuff, right? I'm an old guy. I don't need any of that now. But if you wanna know what's going on, I'll tell you what's going on. He goes, oh, most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor because of the high position he gave him. All the people in the nations and the men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those of the king wanted to put to death, he could put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he could spare. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory, not by any other empire, but by God himself. The story of Nebuchadnezzar is fascinating. Of all the horrible things Nebuchadnezzar did, he destroyed Jerusalem, he destroyed the temple, he killed all kinds of God's people, but he eventually ends his life humbled before God and following God, right? His story ends much better than most of the kings of Israel and Judah. But Daniel says in verse 22, but you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you. You and your nobles and your wives and your conquests that you drank from them. You did not honor God who holds in his hand your life. And he says, this is what the inscription, the writing on the wall says, many, many tickle parson. And this is what it means. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting and your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And later on, right after that, the Medes and the Persians join forces and they come in and they destroy the Babylonians, right? And the Medes and the Persians, uh, that's what enters into this period of the restoration. The Medes and the Persians are led by this great, great leader uh, named Cyrus the Great. 
And Cyrus the Great is an incredible guy to study just from a historical perspective, right? Amazing leader. He leads his nation well, he leads his people well, he's a great military commander. And Cyrus the Great leads this great Persian empire. And you might think, well, it's like, hey, God wasn't saved, or God's people weren't saved by God, they were saved by Cyrus, you know, the leader of the Persians. But it's really cool, is remember how I said, all of history bends to God's will, he's the actor in the story. 160 years before Cyrus was born, God spoke of him through the prophet Isaiah. Let me read you this. This comes from the prophet Isaiah. And it says, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. God's saying this of him. He is my shepherd and he shall, shall fulfill my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Right, right there, 160 years, God is saying that there will be a man that I appoint named Cyrus who I will use for my purposes to come and to build my temple and to build the walls. I will use them for that pur purpose. All of, all of history bends to God's will. And Cyrus, sure enough, does just this. Remember how uh, I told you the Assyrians would take the people and scatter them all throughout the empire. The Babylonians would bring the people back to their, their city and use them, right? Now, Cyrus and the Persians did something different. They said, if you wanna go home, go home, right? They started letting the Jewish people go home. Uh, Cyrus, again, this is a guy who's well-attested in history. This is in the British Museum called the Cyrus Cylinder, talking about all of his exploits in history as well. Really cool artifact. Uh, but you see that Cyrus, uh, in Second Chronicles, you see his decree. It says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the war, word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, uh, he moved the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. And this is what Cyrus, king of Persia says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has anointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Just look at those words, let them go. Remember, remember the original political power way back in the story of the Old Testament, the Pharaoh of Egypt would not let the people go. But God had anointed Cyrus to let his people return to the land that he had given them. And so he did. And we see this play out as the Persian empire grows and grows, right? We see them start enabling people to return to Jerusalem. And you see this timeline, you know, in 586, Babylon destroys Jerusalem and the temple. 539, the Persians conquer Babylon. In 536, just three years later, some Jews start returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. You see that in the story of Ezra. Uh, in 484 to 465 BC, you get the story of Esther, who becomes queen of Persia and thwarts a plan of people trying to uh, subvert this effort of the Persians to allow the Israelites to go back. Uh, then we have some other history that Terry's gonna get into more next week with the rise of the Greeks to start challenging the Persians. If everyone ever seen the movie 300 before, you remember a, a king named Xerxes? Uh, you see this story start playing itself out. Uh, but then in 458 and 444, Ezra comes to Jerusalem to restore worship. And then in 444, you see the story of Nehemiah who goes back to rebuild the wall, right? All of these stories are taking place during the time of the restoration. So you have the time of the captivity, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, then Cyrus ends the Babylonian empire, then the time of the restoration with the, the prophets Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, really ending out the Old Testament. 
right? The Old Testament ends with God's people returning to Jerusalem. God's people returning uh, from, from, from out of the depths of the Babylonian empire, returning to the land that God had promised them. And then God gives them instructions on what to do while they're there. Uh, in the prophet Haggai, the Lord's messenger gave this message to the Lord of the people, said, God says that I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred the spirits of Zerubbabel uh, and the spirit of Joshua and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. And they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month of the second year of King Darius. And they start rebuilding the temple. Now the temple during the time of Solomon was one of the most grand buildings you could imagine, right? Beautiful building that had been constructed over years with all these resources that David had acquired and Solomon had constructed. Uh, the temple at the time of the res restoration was nothing compared to that. Uh, this is an image of what they believed the temple to look like. It was very bland, very basic, but God had got his people back to begin rebuilding the temple. Uh, God had brought his people back to start reforming the community of the Jewish people in the land that he had promised them. Uh, the people start to multiply again. This people start to, to build community and it sets the stage for those 400 years of people growth that occur between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the new. God's people are back where he promised them. And so the Old Testament ends with the prophet Malachi. And he says this, another prophecy, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And again, he says, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the, uh, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. A lot of you are more, more familiar with the New Testament. Everyone thinks that Elijah will come before the Messiah. And Jesus says, I tell you, Elijah has come, right? He was John the Baptist, who was the voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for the coming king. You see how it fulfills all these prophecies coming through. But this is the story of the Jewish people at the end of the Old Testament. It starts within the beginning. They're at home with God in the garden. We screw up and we fall and we are constantly in exile. But all through the Old Testament, God is moving heavens and earth. He is moving nations and kings. He is using men and women. He is using people of low estate and high estate. He is using everyone to do one thing, to bring his people back home. Nations rise and nations fall, but all the world's power, all of history bends to God's will. And this is God's will to bring you home to be with him, right? He's bringing us home. Now, the story of Old Testament is told over thousands of years in so many different authors, but it's this story over and over again. But the reason I love the Old Testament is because the story of the Old Testament is our story, right? We are all living in exile from God. We are all living in a land that is not the land we are meant. We are living in bodies that decay and are destroyed. We are living in communities and relationships that are broken down, right? We are living in a place that just doesn't seem right. But God in his love has made a way for us to come home. And as I read the Old Testament, I'm always reassured of my faith because I figure that if God would raise empires and destroy empires, 
if he would raise kings and he would depose kings, if he would move waters, if he would move mountains, if he would, if he would make whales swallow people and then bring them onto shore, if he would do all of these great things to help his people come home because he loves them, would he not do everything possible to make a way for me to come home because he loves me too? And I just want you to know today that of all this cool history, he loves you and he's made a way for you to come home. As we put our faith in Christ, we get to come home. And that is God's story and it's our story. Next week, next week, there we go. Next week, Alexander the Great and the Greeks and the Terry Fakes will be back. See you all, have a great week. <laughs>